Welcome back to Kyle's Eternal Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be discussing Season of Storms, Chapters 17, 18, and Interlude 9. So, uh, you know, we're approaching the end. Things are wrapping up. Pretty much the Riceburg Castle stuff is wrapped up uh, in this, this section. And most of the Kerouac stuff outside of a few minor things are cleared up. Um, what I think is the strongest here is... Even though this is structured like a bunch of short stories happening simultaneously, and that does cause some issues uh, here and there with the pacing, and it's a little odd in places, what it does is allows us to thematically connect two different disparate places, uh, you know, sort of threads um, along similar lines. It, this essentially is a meditation on privilege and. Uh, with power comes privilege, and with uh, with privilege comes even greater power. So, uh, Sora Degulant was given a slap on the wrist uh, for everything he did, all the murder he did. Uh, uh, he even killed one of his fellow mages, who was sent to Povis. He was basically, you know, uh, like, oh, you've been a bad boy. Okay, we're going to put you in this laboratory so you can continue working for us. And then... Uh, you know, Penity tells Geralt about uh, the situation and how there's a way to get in if he can try. Uh, and so Geralt goes out and uh, requisitions the help of a werewolf that he had helped many years ago um, and to, to track it down. And once again, that's a weird coincidence with Witcher 1 because Witcher 1 also has a werewolf character in it that helps you out depending on your choices. Again, like I said, there's this weird bit of this book that's kind of connected to The Witcher 1, but not quite, and it's very odd, um, you know, just looking at it from that angle. When he, uh, you know, when, when he goes and he deals with Sorrel uh, by choking him to death, and, uh, you know, Sorrel tried to, you know, deviate the blame from him. Oh, it was, it was Ortolan who did this, or blah, 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 blah. And even his lawyer uh, pleaded basically insanity on his behalf. And the letter written by the chapter of Brotherhood was uh, effectively saying, oh, the, the people uh, that were killed by him were asking for it, that they were uh, nothing but, uh, you know, horrible peasants who were filthy and disgusting and, you know, they had it coming kind of thing. Very, very horrible rhetoric, which again ties into earlier in the book, I talked about how there was a lot of verbiage used here that reminded me a lot of the Me Too movement and No Means No, the she was asking for it, uh, you know, kind of rhetoric that popped up around that same time too, and he's using it to show just how vile that is in a, as a use for a defense. And basically, it was only when Geralt took the law into his own hands, he decided to forgo all the systems of law and order and all that to instill a form of justice did justice happen the law only goes so far and the law is often created by those in power who want to stay in power i work on a documentary about the racism rate in america 
we have the highest rate in the entire world. And what that means is that our prison system isn't intended to reform, it's intended to make money. It's a pipeline intended for a, a full circle of crime to prison, making money for the, the system, release, go back to crime, get back in prison, make money for the system, release, etc. You know, do crime again. We are not about reforming, we're about money. And the uh, the people I work with, uh, you know, they say the the system isn't broken. The system is working exactly how it was intended to, which was to you know keep the majority uh, in a certain state and keep the minority in a certain state and to uh, increase profits exponentially. And that's what essentially we have here is that the system was broken. It was taken advantage of, and so in order to actually instill justice to actually accomplish something Geralt had to take it into his own hands. And when he did, it caused a domino effect. Ortolan supposedly died uh, from a, a poison he accidentally released in his experiments, uh, just like how Sorrel uh, suffered an unfortunate accident in one of his experiments. Um, and then conveniently, the chapter revealed that they had no idea about the situation at, at Reisberg and how Orsalon was grooming uh, young men and how he was taking advantage of them and uh, and the the morally dubious practices uh, that were going on. No, they, they had no idea. But now that they know, now that these people have been killed and therefore can't speak up about, uh, you know, in their defense or against the chapter, the 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 fault is conveniently placed on them and they reform Riceburg Castle with staff changes and banning of certain things and it's all for show it's pomp and circumstance it's all about appearing important I think this is um I, I, I I've heard I've heard the term of um rainbow capitalism that on pride month um you know supporting uh, the LBGTQ plus uh, people, the, the this this minority who deserves, uh, you know, help and and all that stuff, uh, and re representation in media, etc. That uh, the companies will say that they do this, and they'll they'll change their icons on social media. They'll be the pride flag for the month. And then it's back to business as usual. And most of what they're doing is performative. It's not actually anything important. They have quotas they have to fill for diversity's sake. And oftentimes um, companies will fulfill that exact quota and then no more. In the same circumstance here, you know, it, 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 it's, it's performative. It, it's capitalism pretending to be uh, morally and ethically just. But it's not. It's a system built on exploitation uh, and therefore cannot in any way be morally or ethically just. But it sure pretends it is. Uh, fake it till you make it kind of thing. And then we see that reflected in the Karak stuff. Uh, at the wedding, Bellahoon is murdered. In the necklace he was gifted by his soon-to-be wife who, as we find out, isn't 17 years old as he thought, is actually a Eratusa dropout, um, and is known to be quite a schemer, gifted him this necklace, it kills him, 
uh, and then her lover, uh, quote-unquote, um, Varaxis, the, the banished son of Belahun, comes in, and he's like, I'm now king, and, and he says, you know, I'm going to still marry her, you know, uh, as the, the old law of Karak centuries ago said, blah, 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 you know, and no, Karak hasn't even been around for a hundred years, and we fully well know it won't last the turn of the century. It's going to collapse in a few on oh, a few years too. That because Varaxis came in and said, "I'm king," and Belhun had specifically filled his wedding with sycophants, they just went along with it. He he is the king, and the king is always right. With power comes privilege, and with privilege comes even more power, and that can be abused. And what's interesting is that Belahun, his undoing was his own bigotry. He has repeatedly, since the beginning of the book, talked about women in a demeaning way. He's incredibly misogynistic, and I talked about how that misogyny goes to every level of Karak, you know, from the guard station up to the higher echelons to the king, right? He is killed by his wife, his soon-to-be wife, his fiancée, who was actively lying to him, and he could not suspect her or expect her to do this. As far as he was concerned, she is a baby-making machine. Uh, he had a law already written up about how her, her firstborn is going to be the, his heir, and that soon he'll dispose of her and maybe get someone else, and stuff like that. It's interesting how this is a, these two stories are effectively concluded with uh with the same thematic ideal of that privilege is something that can be abused um and with that privilege comes immense power um that some may can take advantage of much like how um the, you know the chapter was able to use the plausible deniability and the in the privilege of their station to carry out these experiments with Orson and Sorrel and then you know throw them under the bus at the end much like how uh Varaxis can cleanly take over without any object uh, uh, you know objection and declare that a law that cannot and does not exist does exist, and he's just taken at face value. But, at the same time, Belhum being undone by his misogyny shows that the privilege, uh, while it has power, it also comes with weaknesses. Someone can take their role for granted. And if someone can figure their way around that, find their weak spot, they can take advantage of that and undo that privilege pretty quickly and pretty easily. Belhum was the king. He is right, right? All the time. The king is always right, but he was misogynistic. So he did not look at women the way of an equal, but of a lesser. And so a woman got the upper hand of him. The end. Right? And I think that's interesting how those are thematically linked. Uh, about how how systems aren't, uh, aren't broken, they're working exactly as intended, but what in order to survive, you must take advantage of that system whether you're at the top or at the bottom, and it's a dog-eat-dog world, and that's the sad state of things. That's that's what the world is under capitalism and what the world is under a profit-driven motivation. Uh, and I, I think that is it's a very cynical look, but it's very Spikaski and very Witcher, 
Um, and I like how he ties these two threads thematically together. The Riceberg stuff was always my favorite part of this book, and so to see it thematically reflected in a lot of the short stories was actually a really good call on his behalf. And, and I like how, uh, you know, Pyro Pratt's daughter, who was, uh, um, uh, the one who, uh, sort of tried to get the, the swords and supposedly gave, um, uh, uh, was a widow who gave Geralt the broken sword, how she ties back into the Pyro Pratt stuff and how that ties into Sorrel's, uh, you know, experiments with transhumanism and about the way in which if, if we look at the way that we exploit systems that is, you know, sort of looked at in transhumanism, yeah, uh, in a, a grotesque concept of, uh, of effectively eugenics, of social Darwinism, and the thing about Sorrel's death, I think, hits the most ironically is we see his abominations, his creatures, they're grotesque, they're disgusting, and they're, they're barely even recognizable as human at all, right? But that's the idea. The tra transhumanism is, you know, it's the ship of Theseus thing. You know, remove one plank, uh, that's fine, but remove all the planks, is it still the same ship? Whereas here, you know, he's taking the pros of all these different stuff and then melding them together, and what we have is a grotesque monstrosity. And... When he's getting killed, he begs for his life, saying, I'm only human. Exactly. In his future, in his transhumanist future, where uh, you know, we have all the pros and no, none of the cons from all the others, we have enacted eugenics and wiped out all the weak, humans would be so totally un undefinable because humans are flawed. They're a flawed creation. And with that comes the cons that cannot exist in transhumanism. And as such, Sorrel, who took advantage of a, a system he was put into and was given the privilege to continue his work even after caught with his exploitation, is so flawed he could not exist in his own future. He is too much of a human for transhumanism. And I think that is a, a wonderful, wonderful bit of irony of how he is so short-sighted and how people like him who exploit the system, who, uh, you know, use it the way it was created to keep those in power in power, do not think long-term. They think short-term. Hence their privilege to do that. Someone who isn't in that power has to think long-term. They don't have the privilege to do that. And so he doesn't see the own flaw in his very own plan, and that's a big ol' irony. I like how uh, when Lita and Mosaic show up at the wedding, uh, Mosaic and, and Lita had a bet going on of if Geralt would be there, and Mosaic won. And I think that shows that Mosaic, despite being this, this abused person, sees Geralt more than Lita does. Because again, Lita always has to be at the center of attention at all times. Which means that uh, even when they were doing the breakup, it was all about her. And then when they meet again at the uh, the wedding, she's like, I don't like melodrama, but maybe give me a letter of your affection and blah, 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 a, a, a token. And it's very me, 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 me. 
um, she she can't hear you over over the the the, the noise of the choir, uh, you know, praising every footstep she has. Whereas Mosaic, being the abused woman that she is, again not having the privilege, uh, to uh, be all about herself, sees girl for who he is, and and sees. Uh, what the that he would more than willingly come to the wedding if she was there or not, it didn't really matter. And uh, I think that hurts Lita because for once she wasn't right, for once she wasn't the center of attention, and that really pisses her off. Um, and I, I think what's interesting with that is we have all these different characters in positions of power who are using the system, exploiting the system, but Lita because of her position as a woman in Karak, has the authority and the privilege, but it's far more limited. But she uses it in a far more blatantly, blatantly selfish way than others do. Whereas everyone else is operating on a selfish thing, but they, they crowd it up in other ideas of, oh, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, you know, helping the future of the human race, or I'm, uh, you know, securing the future of this kingdom. Whereas for Lita, it's me, 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 me. Um, and I think that's interesting that despite her limited authority in this, in this area, she is the most blatantly selfish. At least on the outside, anyway. The the werewolf stuff is very minor. Uh, like I said, it's a weird connection to Witcher 1. Um, but what I do think is interesting is all the jokes that are thrown throughout there. First of all, we see Geralt, you know, in a position where he's not on the defensive. Uh, he's being the aggressor in this situation. Normally, even when he's the aggressor, um, the, the, the social dynamics when his conversations tend to change for him being all the defensive. But this time, he's purely on the aggressive. We see him have the upper hand the entire time, which is a nice inversion of what it standardly is. And then you get you get little scenes like, uh, little small passages like, uh, you know, as though from a cheap novel, this happened so that the action could continue. Um, or when Dandelion shows up at the wedding, uh, Dandelion appeared out of nowhere, a deus ex machina. Uh, and, uh, then the, uh, bit where Gaul's trying to get into the laboratory to kill Sorrel, and he realizes that the magical spell, uh, can be, that this area can be weakened and have it be opened by speaking friend, just like Lord of the Rings, the Mines of Moria, speak friend and you may enter. Of course, it's a different context. It's Sapkowski making fun of Lord of the Rings and how simplistic that that riddle is but i but in lord of the rings the sim, uh, the simple uh, the simplistic nature of the riddle was the point that because the world was so uh, mired by distrust and war that the mere idea of uh, of two two different races being friends was ludicrous and so that's why it took them so long to get through the passage even though it was so simple as literally friend whereas here it's not in that context but it is talking about how that is a horrible way to secure anything because if you aren't in that exact circumstance where the idea of friendship is so ludicrous then it's so fucking easy friend walks through grabs all your treasures leaves you know kind of thing and th there's this very tongue-in-cheek while he's 
while he's making these meditations on privilege and power and how they relate to each other and the abusive systems and how systems operate in a particular way to keep those in power and power, which are very heavy and pretty dark subjects in, the, in a lot of places, and especially all the stuff with Sorrel was pretty gruesome, he also takes the time to throw jokes around. And I think that is one of Spukowski's greatest strengths is knowing how to balance tones. Um... So, anyway, I shall see you next time for the final bit of Witcher, uh, when we finish out Season of Storms, which will then be followed by a update episode of sorts, and I'll see you then. Bye!